So the name of tonight's talk is Finding Inspiration from Our Spiritual Heritage. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mioshan Kelly. I'm um, actually the teacher in residence at the Forest Refuge. And I have just returned from a month away. Can you hear okay? Is this? No? Yeah? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, during this time, I traveled to Bodh Gaya in India, which is the place where the Buddha became enlightened. And tonight, I wanted to share something, a little bit about my journey and the inspiration that came to me during this time. One aspect of it was that was very strong and was around touching into the whole lineage of beings that, you know, going back to the Buddha, um, sitting under that Bodhi tree. You know, I mean, it, it isn't exactly the same tree there today. At one point, that tree was destroyed, but fortunately, there had been a sapling taken to Sri Lanka, and the current Bodhi tree is a relative of the original Bodhi tree. But, you know, being in the very place of his awakening, he talked about how, for one of faith, that in, in traveling to any of the four holy sites, that one could find inspiration. And it was certainly my experience in being there. And, uh, you know, it was, to me, uh, uh, there was many lessons, but just rich uh, in its present incarnation, you know, Bodh Gaya is located in an area of India that is very, very poor. And uh, the pollution is horrific, the garbage around. And yet th there, there is now a very beautiful stupa there. And, you know, there, there's layers to it. It begins with an outer kora where people, you know, can walk around this stupa. You know, there's a pillar in the center and then the Bodhi tree to one side of it and then around it this kora where there was many people walking and then, you know, a few different levels where you know, some people were doing prostrations, others were sitting, and then an inner kora that was went quite, quite went right underneath the Bodhi tree and, you know, more people were walking. Um, I was there at a time where there had just been the Kaju Monlam, which is a time where uh, this Tibetan tradition comes together and does prayers for days uh, in honor of world peace and harmony. And the Karmapa made an expression that it's out of their love and care for all living beings that they do this. And so there was, you know, Tibetans had come from all over the place for this event. And then later in the month, there was the Nyingma Manlim. I also have a little jet lag, so my syllables may slip here and there, but please bear with me. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, more prayers. and. Um, and then there, there was people from Japan and Korea and Vietnam, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Burma, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Western people, uh, you know, just all just being there and, you know, contemplating the impact of one man's life. And that, you know, this is just, you know, really a smattering of all of the Buddhists around the world. And that, you know, there's just so many people following in his footsteps. Uh, you know, that alone, the impact of one life. And, you know, in being there, religious pilgrimages are never easy. I don't think they were ever meant to be easy. You know, that, that there's, one has to let go of, uh, on many different levels of comfort, of ease, and, you know, knowing that probably for some people they spent their life savings to get there. But it was so important to them to do this. And, you know, I loved 
the fact in my own life I have practiced in different traditions and I, you know I could recognize the chanting from some of the different countries and you know it was just so warming to see people come together in this way just in um, reflecting as I did there and feeling for me how important a sense of lineage is. You know, to know that I'm not walking this path alone. That many, many others have done this work and have successfully done this work. And that, you know, many of them struggled in just the same way that we do. It just lights up my heart. I couldn't help but reflect a little bit on the life of the Buddha in being there. You know, because here I sat in the place of his enlightenment. And, you know, I've heard the story of his life many times, and, and, you know, probably many variations or slight variations on this. And always I find it inspiring, you know, to know that he was once not enlightened, <laughs> you know, that uh, he actually was born into quite privileged circumstances. Um, and, you know, it is it, it said that there was uh, predictions at the time of his birth that he would be a great being and that that great being could either be a ruler of men you know, in the same way that his father was. In the same way, his father was a very powerful man. And that, you know, his father's hope was that his son would carry on. But the other prediction was that he would become an awakened one and benefit many people. So his father, in hopes that his son would follow in his footsteps, tried to shield him from seeing how precarious our lives are as human beings and how within these lives there is suffering. So the Buddha, in his young, before he was a Buddha, um, in his younger years was protected. His father gave him the finest of material goods. There was three palaces so that he could be in a different palace in each season. And that if people in the community got sick, were aging, dying, they were simply removed from the community so that he would not see them. But at some point, the Buddha did come in contact with the suffering we face as living beings, human beings. And, you know, it really woke him up, in a sense, to see that there was no refuge in sense pleasure. There was no refuge in having, no matter how fine of things that we have, that this is all subject to decay that relationships begin and end. So there's no lasting happiness to be found. He saw this and pondered where true happiness could be found. I think for each of us, this is something we've seen in our own lives no matter what the conditions have been in life, no matter how good our lives may be, there's still this level of disease, discomfort, 
For some of us, we may have noticed it as children and never been quite able to buy the party line or could never fall into with ease a conventional life. For some of us, we may have gone a very conventional route, got educated, degrees, had good jobs, families. And not to say there's not value in that, but still there's the recognition that we're not truly happy. And at the same time, it doesn't lead to despair. It doesn't lead to grief. But in profound moments, a sense of possibility arises. And I know from my own experience that can come even in the darkest of moments, even when suffering is so deep, that there is a sense, that there is true happiness, that there is a release from suffering. And so we begin our journey in just the same way the Buddha did. His journey was quite dramatic in that he completely renounced his life where he could have become a king. He let go of that. He left his family and he set off to find true happiness. Each of us in our own ways practices this level of, well, a level of renunciation. <laughs> I can't say that I always have the same level of renunciation as the Buddha did. Um, but, you know, we have moments of renunciation, even in the midst of our daily lives, uh, where we get angered. And rather than just habitually falling into that anger, we look within. We renounce that anger, and instead look at its nature, at its causes, the conditions. We have moments of renunciation in our lives when we might get up in the morning, and instead of just beginning life by doing the next activity, we sit and be with this body and mind. We practice renunciation when we come on retreat and we let go of, you know, the comforts of life, a sense of control that we can have in our own home. And we come and live in a more simple way. We let practice renunciation when in a moment of thinking, rather than following the thought, we let go. There's many moments when we take the same path of renunciation. This renunciation that allows us to shift from being caught up, indulgent in the world of sense pleasure, in the world of having and acquiring, and instead look within. Turn towards being rather than doing. So the Buddha, on his journey, began to practice with some teachers of his time who were very adept at the jhana practice, the system of practicing absorption into an object of meditation that leads to very peaceful and profound states of happiness where there has been a relinquishment of the hindrances, where the mind is very stable on the meditation object, and yet 
he had the wisdom to see that this too is conditioned, that this too is subject to impermanence. So, in seeing this, he moved on. He tried other practices. He tried practices that were very severe, that, you know, really involved self-mortification, that complete renunciation of even food. I mean, it's said that at one point he was eating a grain of rice a day. And it's also, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the emaciated Buddha, but it's, you know, his body became so withered. It's said that when he placed his hand on his belly, he could feel his backbone. You know, there was just nothing there. I actually had a similar experience the first time I practiced in Burma. Um, And it wasn't through this great level of renunciation. (laughs) It was through illness. But, uh, you know, I I had that same sense. Um, And, you know, the body losing energy. And, you know, so when the body was so dilapidated, it was very difficult to practice. I mean, I, I really had trouble standing upright, which is what happened to him, and he almost drowned. And, you know, then again had the wisdom to see this wasn't leading to the end of suffering. And so at that time, he also remembered a memory from his childhood. When he'd he'd been watching, uh, he'd just been a small child placed out on a blanket, and there had been some competition that was happening that his father was had organized, and everyone was very engrossed in it. And meanwhile, he sat under this tree. I think it was a rose bush, and his mind naturally inclined to meditation, and he had this memory and thought, could that be the way? And I I can't remember if it was right before that, there had actually been a a woman who had found this dilapidated being and had offered him some um, rice gruel, which had given him the energy to once again practice. And so, you know, as he uh, began to practice again, he began doing anapanasati, you know, mindfulness of breathing. And this led him to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the cessation of suffering. And, you know, this is what transpired that night sitting under the Bodhi tree. And then, you know, in the course of his life, he went on to help so many people. And they were from all walks of life. You know, there was... uh, said to be a mass murderer, Angulimala. There was um, somebody who was a cannibal. Um, you know, there was prostitutes. There was uh, people with mental impairments. You know, the, um, just all kinds of people. And these people were able to awaken I thought tonight I would share a few stories from both uh, beings whom awakened in the time of the Buddha and some more present-day teachers of mine that have really inspired me. And so just to begin with, uh, the two chief disciples of the Buddha And with each of these beings, you know, it's not the full stories of their life or a lot of detail, but I'm just lighting upon some aspect of their lives that may have something we can relate to in our own life or can find some piece of inspiration in. So Sariputta and Moggallana were the chief disciples of the Buddha and likened to be like his left and right arms. Uh, They were friends before they met the Buddha. And they actually had made a vow to each other 
that should one of them discover the path to the deathless, they would let the other one know. Now this points to the value of good friendship. Because it happened that Moggallana first met another disciple of the Buddha, a Siji. And in meeting this monk, he immediately recognized there was something different about him. And so he began to question him. And it said that upon hearing two stanzas from this monk, he hit stream entry, or the first stage of awakening. And uh, he then went and found his friend, and they sought out the Buddha. So, you know, uh, they went together to hear the teachings from the Buddha. It's also said that both Sariputta and Moggallana had made aspirations in the time of the previous Buddha, which was a long, long time ago, that they wanted to be the chief disciples of the next Buddha. And I think there's something in this too, in the power of aspiration, that you know, when we really take to heart the desire to awaken, that time doesn't matter anymore, that the agenda doesn't matter, but we can stay steadfast in whatever it takes to wake up. And that's what they did in order to fulfill their aspiration. So Sariputta was known as one who helped others. Even though he was you know, chief disciple of the Buddha, it's said that when the other monks would go out, he would take care in the monastery where things needed to be swept, he would simply do the sweeping, you know, cleaning up where it needed to be cleaned up. That he always had time for the young monks uh, the aging monks, the sick monks. Uh, He was said to be filled with patience and forbearance. (laughs) There was uh, a group of people saying that it was really impossible to anger Sariputta. And so one person in hearing this wanted to put it to the test. And so when Sariputta came along, he struck him really hard from behind And Sariputta simply said, what was that? And walked on. And the Brahmin who had done it um, found himself asking for forgiveness and then offered Sariputta a meal. He was said to be very humble and grateful for anyone who corrected him for his conduct. And one day there was a seven-year-old monk who saw Sariputta and noticed that his inner robe was not very neat. And so he told Sariputta this. And so Sariputta straightened his robe and then put it, clasping his hands together, said, now is it correct, teacher? And it said that he was always grateful to that young monk. He was grateful to all of his teachers. He never forgot them. Sariputta uh, became awakened one day when he was uh, with the Buddha and he was actually fanning the Buddha. And he was listening to the discourse the Buddha was giving. It was about the contemplations of feelings. And he was reflecting on how the Buddha knew and understood this from his own direct experience. And he spoke about abandoning these feelings. And then it was said that suddenly the final knowledge arose in his mind. So his counterpart was Moggallana, or Maha Moggallana, as he was known, 
the great Moggallana. I love the story of his enlightenment because it gives me hope. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, it said that you know Moggallana became very inspired and went off to the forest to practice with great zeal, but even with this great zeal, found himself nodding off, falling asleep. And then the Buddha appeared in front of him, and he said, Are you nodding, Magalana? Are you nodding? <laughs> Caught out. <laughs> of course, Magalana answered yes. And then the Buddha went on to speak to him and give him instructions about working with sleepiness. And if you've ever heard a talk on the hindrances, probably a lot of what you've heard about working with sleepiness comes from this sutta. So to know that here is this great being on the brink of enlightenment, working with sleepiness. So do not be discouraged should you encounter sleepiness along the path. It too can be used as a basis for awakening. The Buddha gave him instructions on sleepiness and then also pointed towards conduct that would be conducive to meditation. And, you know, we know from our own experience that in our lives, if we act in ways that create harm, create agitation in the mind, when we come to sit, that's what we sit with. So, you know, just giving ourselves supportive conditions in our lives to practice. He also talked about how, um, how the arising of pride, conceit, you know, getting overly enthusiastic in intellectual conversation, how that too is going to lead to agitation and restlessness. So after Magalana heard these instructions from the Buddha, he was very inspired, as I'm sure we all would be if we had a visit from the Buddha. <laughs> and he practiced. And he too awoke from delusion. And it was said to have happened within one week. So um, who knows? Another of the disciples of the Buddha that I find very inspiring uh, is Ananda, who was um, his attendant for many years. I actually one day want to give a full talk on Ananda because I think there's just so many qualities that Ananda had that can relate to our lives. His life was so based in service. You know, that he took care of the Buddha in such a beautiful way. And I think we can all be grateful to him for that. Because really, if, if the Buddha hadn't you know, gone on the path that he did and then been able to share that with others, we wouldn't be sitting here today. You know, it's really had that big of an impact. And so Ananda was very instrumental in this, first in taking care of the Buddha, and then in the fact that he had a brilliant memory. And because he was always with the Buddha, he would hear the discourses that the Buddha gave, and he could later recite them word for word. And it was said that when he actually missed a discourse that the Buddha gave, the Buddha would then repeat it to him. So he just had, you know, access to volumes of teachings, which became very important. But there, there's something about Ananda's enlightenment that is quite interesting too, because he was his attendant for many years, and that meant he couldn't go off and sit under a tree or in a cave and practice. 
he was busy in service. And he had reached stream entry, but he was not fully enlightened. And that became important after the death of the Buddha when they were going to have a council where they were going to begin reciting the discourses of the Buddha so the teachings would not be lost. And Ananda knew these teachings better than anyone else. But a requirement for being at this council was that you were fully enlightened, that you were an arahant. And so Ananda was not. And I think he was given the message, well, you better be by the time the council happens. So the night before, he's practicing diligently through the night. Morning comes. Mm-mm. Not an arahant. <laughs> what to do? So he went to lay down. And In that moment, as his feet were lifting off the floor and before his head hit the pillow, he awakened. I often remember him when I'm getting into bed. (laughs) And so he attended the council. (laughs) Another aspect that I have immense gratitude for with Ananda is the part that he played in women being able to ordain. When the Buddha first started the Sangha, uh, the monastic order, women were not allowed to ordain. And, you know, I think this was something reflective of conditions for women in that time. And so this had gone on for about five years. And at one point, the Buddha's mother, who was actually his stepmother, because his his actual birth mother had died within a week of his birth, but his stepmother had been her sister and had taken care of him since being a young child. And she had wanted to ordain. And she asked the Buddha three times if she and other women could ordain. And each time the Buddha had said no. And then the Buddha made a long journey and uh, the Buddha's mother, Mahaprajnapati, I believe, um, find it, <laughs> Mahapajapati, um, followed along on this long journey. And, you know, they, this group of women had lost many of their husbands, their fathers, their sons to the monastic order, and then were left in lay life with their children, um, with, or, or, you know, with no family. And many of them, too, had been profoundly touched by the teachings of the Buddha. And so they followed the Buddha on this long journey. And, you know, it said that (laughs) Mahapajapati had swollen feet, you know, grazed feet, um, was in a state of tears, and Ananda came across her and asked her, what the problem was. And she explained that the Buddha would not let her or other women ordain. And so Ananda went to the Buddha and asked him three times on behalf of the women whether they could ordain. And each time he said no. And then Ananda asked him whether or not it was possible for a woman to become an arahant. And he said yes. And then he reminded the Buddha of how his stepmother had cared for him. And the Buddha did allow women to ordain. 
Actually, I just heard a very inspiring story. I have a friend named Aryanyani, who's a Swiss nun. Uh, she's uh, she ordained in '92 or '93. We were together in Burma at the time. Uh, very inspirational woman, and she's right now in a very small monastery in Burma with you know a handful six. Uh, Western women practicing there at the moment. And she just wrote me an email saying that five women had just ordained <laughs> that through inspiration from her. So, you know, the lineage goes on. This is, was another blessing from Ananda. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about a woman named Sona, who lived in the time of the Buddha. Um, I like her story because she was very advanced in years when she became a devout disciple and then went on to become an arahant. Uh, I thought about telling a story about another woman named Vasaka, but since she reached stream entry at the ripe age of seven years old, I thought maybe we wouldn't be able to relate to her so well. But Sona had some uh, aspects of life that maybe some of us in some degree have touched upon. She was actually the mother of ten children, and uh, she was actually called Sona with many children. And her whole life revolved around these children, bringing them up, taking care of them, getting them married. Um, you know, it had just been central to her life. And then her husband was a devout disciple of the Buddha, at first a layperson, and then later decided to ordain and left her, which at first she wasn't so happy, but then decided that she too would practice. And so she just thought she would simplify her life. She gave all of her assets to her children and asked that they just take care of her basic needs. Well, that was okay for a while for her children, but then they started to get resentful. You know, she became a burden. And um, they, they had little empathy for the life she was choosing, and they actually hadn't approved of their father ordaining either. And they thought that both their parents were fools, mentally unstable, and religious fanatics. <laughs> um, and this was really painful for Sona. And at first, she got very bitter that she had realized that what she had taken to be selfless love in all her years of mothering was in reality self-love coupled with expectation. You know, she had expectation that her children, out of gratitude for all that she had given to them, would take care of her in her old age. You know, she'd really seen that her love came with conditions. It wasn't freely offered. And then she remembered the words of the Buddha, that you know, she saw she couldn't rely on others. But she remembered the words of the Buddha, where he'd said that you could rely on one's virtue. And so she decided to become a nun, and she went forth into a homeless life. But this was not easy. She was already quite old at this point, and some of us may have noticed that as we age, our habits become pretty strong. We like things to be a certain way and become, can become, don't always, can become more fixed. And so when she moved into the nuns' community, this was what her experience was. And it was leading to a lot of friction between her and the other nuns. She realized from this that she needed to have a strong support of mindfulness when strong emotions would arise. And because of her age, 
she practiced with a lot of diligence. She had a strong sense of spiritual urgency. It's said that she would pass entire nights sitting and walking with only minimal sleep. And that, you know, because her presence seemed to create such friction, she would practice in the lower part of the, um, the lower hall, and she'd hang on to the pillars so she wouldn't lose her balance. And her strong effort brought forth a lot of energy. And we may have seen this in our own practice, that when our effort is skillful, you know, when it's not based in grasping, striving, when it's not based in aversion, wanting to get rid of things, but is really balanced and steady, that effort brings about tremendous energy. And so this was her experience. But the story of her enlightenment was very simple. One day, all of the other nuns were going out, and they were leaving her behind, and they told her to boil some water. And so they left her, and she went to boil the water. She fetched the water. She put it on the stove. And as she did so, her mind became composed, and she saw the aggregates as impermanent unsatisfactory, and not-self. And that was it. (laughs) There it was. Simple activities of life. I'm going to run out of time, I see. Ah. Well, there was another woman in the time of the Buddha, uh, Ambapali. I want to speak about her because she was said to have been this beautiful courtesan. And actually she was uh, said to be so beautiful that one time the Buddha was taking a group of monks to see her. And he told them before going to guard their passion. to guard their passion and not to lose their heads over her. (laughs) Well, that was quite comical. Um, But what was interesting about her, so she had been this beautiful courtesan, and then, you know, hearing the teachings of the Buddha, taking them to heart, she actually ordained as a nun, and then used the aging process as her vehicle for awakening. And I wanted to share, she's got a very long poem, which you know, uh, talks about the scene of the impermanence of this once beautiful body. Um, and she does so with a lot of humor. So just to share a few verses from it. I had fine braids fastened with gold. Now old age has made me bald. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My eyes flashed like jewels, long, black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My earlobes were beautiful as bracelets, highly crafted and bright. Now they sag and have wrinkles, all right. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My hands were beautiful, set off by rings, gold as the sun. Now, because of old age, they are radishes or onions. This is the truth of one who speaks, the teaching of one who speaks truth. My breasts were beautiful, high, close together and round. Now, like empty water bags, they hang down. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Taking, you know, an beautiful body, watching it decay, seeing the truth of impermanence, a vehicle for awakening. Whether or not we feel like we were born with this beautiful body, we all can be observers to the aging process. So moving into more current era. 
I'd like to speak about a woman named Deepama. Uh, probably many of you have heard of her. She once came to IMS. Uh, real, I, I never met her myself, uh, except for in a dream. You know, I had a dream one night where I had my head in her lap and I was sobbing and sobbing. And she just rocked me back and forth and patted me on the back. And, you know, the, the dream was just feeling the depths of compassion that she had. And I remember after I had the dream, I spoke to Sharon Salzberg about it and told her about the dream and said, oh, you know, I wished I'd met her. And she told me, you just did. <laughs> you know, it was really reflective of how she was. So she was this little woman. Um, mm. She got married at the age of 12, which was not uncommon in her culture. And a few years later, moved to a foreign country with her husband. Um, she lived for many years not bearing children, which in you know some countries bears a heavy stigma. Uh, and then finally, at one point, she gave birth to a baby girl that died three months later. And she found herself quite grief-stricken and developed a heart problem. Uh, four years later, she had another girl and then a boy. And the boy died at birth. So she was further grief-stricken, and she, at that point in her life, wanted to meditate, but her husband said no. And so she became very sick and unable to leave her bed. Her husband became her caretaker, and then one day he suddenly died. And there she was, sick in her bed, with a daughter to care for. She would sit with a photo of uh, her husband in her lap and simply cry. And her health declined even further. And then one day she had a dream about the Buddha. And in the dream he chanted something from the Dhammapada. He chanted, clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. To one who is entirely free from endearment, there is no sorrow or fear. And this inspired her to meditate. She took herself to a monastery. And you know, it was said that she crawled up the steps. She was in immense pain. But she was very dedicated. And it's said that in a very short period of time, she had deep insight that had a transformative effect. Her health improved and her grief vanished. She had arisen from the depths of her suffering and during the course of her life became very realized. She, um, in her teaching, conveyed something that I think is very important. She had this strong warrior-like effort, but it was an effort that included tenderness, gentleness, and compassion. That compassion that I felt the night in my dream. She found a balance between these, inquality, these qualities. And this is evident in a statement that she once made, where she said, you should practice without regard for body or life, with all the love in your heart. Um, there's some, she's got a book called Knee Deep in Grace. She didn't write it. A, a woman named Amy Schmidt put it together. And uh, I'd like to share something that Amy said about Deepama. Deepama perfected a mature form of effort, one that encompasses both strength and ease, the masculine and the feminine. Practice requires more than a zealous samurai warrior effort. It also demands that we find compassion and love within ourselves. 
We can come to practice like Deepama from a place of childlike wonder that is invincible in its truth and sincerity. Deepama embodied the courageous heart and in doing so has inspired many of us to do the same. There's also a few teachers that I don't know so much about the stories of their lives, but we'll just briefly mention ways in which they have touched my life. The first of these being Sayara Upandita. He was the first Burmese uh, master that I practiced with. And, you know, he's uh, kind of is this fierce warrior. Uh, very demanding teacher, demands a lot of his students. And um, the irony is it was really his compassion that moved me. When I first turned up on retreat with him, I had complete reaction to his teachings and was ready to leave. And out of his compassion, he melted me into butter within a few short minutes. And, um, you know, he gave me a context for doing his style of practice, you know, to just treat it as a scientific experiment, you know, which was something I could do. And uh, it it just inspired me and to continue on, uh, which has been so helpful. I then went on to practice with another Burmese master named Sayada Ujanaka. And um, he, many times when I was in his presence, the sense of faith again would come so strong. And I remember first touching into this faith where I was practicing and I would go in and I would report to him. And he just always seemed so up and inspired. And I thought, wow, he seems to have such faith in me. You know, and, and that kind of gave me energy. But then one day I realized, oh, no, it's not me, Miocean, he has faith in. It's you know, that he has faith that anyone who does this practice, you know, hears these teachings and really applies it, will awaken. And, you know, his, his faith was contagious. You know, it, it was like we're walking a path where awakening is inevitable if we apply ourselves. And, you know, so that was just a very strong message that came through to me. Another Burmese teacher that I've met in only recent years is a man named Sayada Utejaniya. I do know a little bit more about his life in that he was a lay person, that he actually married, had a child. He did a lot of practice as a lay practitioner. And uh, this was before he ordained. And as a result, in his teaching, he really works with practice in all situations in life. And he, he just has a freshness of mind, a, you know, a natural curiosity, sense of investigation into the nature of life. And that, too, was extremely contagious. There's a couple other teachers outside of the Theravada tradition. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that I have traversed through uh, different aspects of the Buddhist teachings. And, you know, out of that, for me, there's really been the seeing that they're all based in the end of suffering. They may have different skillful means. They may come from different angles. But ultimately, it's about the realization of the end of suffering. And doing so, not just for ourselves, but to be of benefit to all beings. And so, you know, another man who had a strong influence was a Zen master named Hogan-san. He actually gave me my name. And, and I had the, the benefit of being in very everyday situations with him. And he turned all of these situations into a Dharma teaching. You know, he just used whatever happened in, in daily life 
as a means to help wake me up. Um, he was very playful and light. It was hard to stay serious in his presence. And yet at the same time, you know, I always had the sense that he could see right through me. When I uh, first organized a retreat for him, he had this way of, you know, continually asking me if something was possible. And I found it impossible to say no to him. And then, you know, I, I, I was wearing myself out just, to, you know, he'd say, oh, is this possible? And I'd run off and do it. Is this possible? And there I'd go and do it. And, and then I was somewhat like Sona in that, Mm, I'd see moments where, you know, there was wanting recognition, wanting to be seen in some way. And it would get reflected back to me through him. And yet it was always done with such love and kindness. You know, that he could really see all of my so-called blemishes. And it didn't matter. But that reflection was so helpful. And then... Uh, another teacher who uh, has a profound impact on my life is a Tibetan uh, man named Minjur Rinpoche. Actually, when I was just in Bodh Gaya, I was receiving teachings from him. And um, he wrote a book called The Joy of Living. And I just learned that when that was translated into Chinese, it doesn't translate well in The Joy of Living. So they called it the happiest man in the world. And that's because scientific tests have been done on his brain where he was so far off the Richter scale in the realm of happiness that they checked all of their equipment thinking this was not possible. But it turned out the equipment was accurate. And he is <laughs> quite something. You know, so I've observed him in his daily life, too. He is so busy. You know, in Bodh Gaya, he would be giving teachings to us. He would uh, be meeting with the Kenpos, the senior monks in his monastery. He was teaching the little monks. You know, there, there was a number of young monks there. Uh, he would be doing personal interviews. He just had a whole host of activities that he would go to day after day after day. And what is so striking in each of these activities, he was so fresh. It was like the first thing he was doing in a day. And it, you know, to me, it was just seeing the power of the unencumbered heart-mind the power of the mind that meets this moment with freshness and so inspiring. All of these people just giving me a taste of what is possible. And I actually had the first thought to give this talk when I was on this trip and at one point journeyed to Vulture's Peak which is where the Buddha gave a number of talks. And around Vulture's Peak, there was said to be many people practicing. You know, it arises out of the Ganges Plain, and it has overhangs and caves, which were, you know, give shelter from the elements. And, you know, on the top, there uh, probably in the time of the Buddha was quite a view. In present day time, it's so polluted and hazy that you can't see that far. But, um, you know, there was a lot of practice that happened in this place. And, you know, just sitting in some of these places, I felt like I could feel the practice that other people had done. And, you know, I had a moment sitting on Vulture's Peak where it took me a while later to find words for it, but I think it was touching into devotion. And what devotion to me is, is where there is transmitted to us this real sense of possibility that we too have this potential to awaken. <laughs> 
And, you know, sitting there on Vulture's Peak, feeling this so palpable, I remembered the forced refuge. And I thought, if there's one thing I would like to come back and be able to share, it's this sense of possibility. Because in our lives, in our practice, it gets hard. We have many, many challenges. We get confused. We lose our way. We sometimes are so discouraged and can think, oh, that was just, you know, a dream, a dream I once had. You know, and I know we've all had some taste of it or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing this work. But sitting there on Vulture's Peak, it seemed so close, so possible. And I just wanted to share that with you in whatever way I could. So thank you for listening. So closing with the reflections on the show. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.